Blog Talk Radio. Greetings and good evening. My name is Joelle and I am the Vibrarian. I am here to elevate, enlighten, and empower. And one of the ways that I do that is through the Conversational Elevation Podcast. I am able to connect with people who are wise voices, who have great insights to talk about the things that I want to talk about, and it is truly a privilege for me to do so. Conversational Elevation is on the Vibrary Radio Network, which is broadcast over Blog Talk Radio. You can also find episodes in any podcast directory on Google Music, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, you can pretty much find us anywhere. And of course, the archives of the show appear on the Vibrary YouTube channel. Now, that is V I B E R A R Y. So, yes, I'm all about information. I am actually a librarian, but the things that I'm doing here are at a higher frequency, hence the Vibrarian and the Vibrary and all of the energy that I bring to this journey. I'm having a series of conversations that are kind of heavy for us, but I think that they're very important. And tonight is the second episode in the conversational series. The previous replay, um, I had the honor of having Miami Knight, who is an author and facilitator. She's written a book about the grief and healing through grief. Last week, we had a wide-ranging discussion where she shared about her journey and experience and personal tragedy and then the work that emerged out of that. I would invite you to definitely check out that because it was full of information and it led right nicely into today's conversation, as you will soon see. Now, you can reach us during the show at 646-787-8436. If you're listening on the phone lines and want to ask a question or make a comment, just press the pound or hashtag and one key. That lets me know that you want to come on to say something live. And, of course, you can always chat on the interface on the chat room through the Blog Talk Radio page, which was linked in the marketing materials, of course, for this post on Facebook and Instagram. So all the housekeeping aside, let's get into tonight's conversation. This series is about grief and the heartbreaking loss and unspoken sadness that accompanies our experience of grief. We all have a common relationship to understand what it is like to experience the loss of something or someone or some aspect of yourself. However, our journey experiencing that loss is very unique to each of us. And so I have gathered together several voices. I think we're going to have about six or seven conversations before it's all said and done of people who I knew from the work that I do that I feel would have had something of value. I may not have known specifically, but I had an inkling because of understanding the work that they're doing, that they would be relevant and helpful to the conversations that are having. My guest this evening, I'm very much smiling from ear to ear because I can honestly say that I just love her with the heartfelt love 
that a person can express to someone who has contributed greatly to their own journey in a meaningful and tangible way. So my guest is Kalina Brown. Now, Kalina is a licensed professional counselor, and I've known her personally for probably 10 years maybe eight to 10 years, including a time period when she provided professional counseling services to myself and my family at the time. But I knew of Kalina because other dear friends had been working with her for years previous to that. So she was like the business card that gets pulled out of the pocket and everybody's got the business card and they're like, you really need to go talk to Kalina, right, would be the, the common thing when something would emerge for us. It's like, who do we call? You say Ghostbusters, call Kalina. So um, over time after that period of work that we were doing, uh, moved on. I guess I graduated a little bit into using the tools that she gave me. We had the opportunity to continue to gauge, engage a sister friends, and I've had her to speak to groups that I've had, bringing out knowledge that she shared over the years. And I immediately thought, I need to have Kalina on for the show. So tonight we are going to be having a conversation, and uh, Kalina actually picked the topic for this evening and the focus of the lens that she wants to bring forward for us this evening. But let me just say, Kalina, welcome to the Grief Conversations on Conversational Elevation. Thank you so much. And... um... There's no surprise to me that you absolutely said this in a way that I feel honored and I absolutely feel a sense of pleasure being able to lend whatever I can to the conversation. I um, agree with you wholeheartedly that our relationship has moved to a sisterhood. Um, I absolutely look forward to all of our opportunities to have any level of interchange because once I've talked to you, I feel like, hmm, not only do I hear her, I feel very comfortable that she hears me. And that's precious to know that you're being heard. And I do appreciate you for your ability to hear. And not only that you hear me, when you give me back to me, I really absolutely feel supported. So thank you so much for being who you are in my life. And as you already know, whatever I can do to support you, be a part of the positive movement, lend to the understanding, I'm open. Um, I happen to be in the United States at this point. However, you know, whatever country <laughs> I'm in, you can call me. Well, <laughs> I'm <laughs> Still trying to come see you wherever you are that's not in the country, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You're so welcome. 
Now, Kalina, could you give our listeners a background of what you are bringing to the table this evening in terms of your professional experience and, of course, any personal experience that you also feel is relevant to where we are? Uh, but just talk, a, you know, share a little bit about you, you and your company, Realize Your Business, Realizing What Matters, and the therapeutic work that you have done here and abroad both. Um, well, uh, I'm always wondering when I'm asked that question, where should I start? Um, I absolutely have been involved in psychology since the ninth grade when I was first introduced to it. Um, and I've worked in hospitals, uh, clinics, school systems, juvenile systems. Um, once I became fully licensed as a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia, I also had a private practice, um, and in that private practice, I was excited because I got the opportunity to do therapy in a way that it made sense to me. Um, realizing what matters is a name that came to me back in 1991. So I've had the company for that long in various stages of support. The complete name of the company is Realizing What Matters. It's a supportive services company. So whatever type of support the human being needs, we were able to provide it. So once I got through with my clinical training, I then did what I call intense family reconstruction. And mm. for me, I kept my, my practice small, and I worked 98% with a population that looks like me. And what I wanted to do and what I think I was relatively successful in doing was to be able to work with families in an intense way, including going to their homes, um, and even in some cases them coming to my home, of course coming to the office, and meeting wherever they were comfortable to deal with whatever issues the family was dealing with. Um, and one thing Joelle did say, which is true, a lot of my clients have been with me 20-plus years, 10-plus mm -hmm. years, so on and so forth. Um, the intense therapy was go for at least two, three years, mm -hmm. and once that has been accomplished, those that found it necessary to stay, for that length of time, then they would go on what I call the maintenance program. And what the maintenance program is, is that I said to my clients after that period, as long as I'm alive and in my, mm -hmm. my right mind, <laughs> you have access to me. And so I have clients that will call me periodically, um, and we call it a check-in. And doing the check-in, that's what we do. We check into what's going on. It could be six months. It could be six years. Um, however, I have now families who I work with, the mothers, when their children were children, then the children are now calling, dealing with their own children and their own marriages. And that basically is what was my vision, that psychology, mental health, the process becomes very normalized and that the families that I got the opportunity to work with would begin to understand the value of what that would be. And I'm very, very happy to have lived long enough to see that generational shift mm -hmm. of how we look at mental health. And um, 
I'm still here. I'm mm-hmm. still in my right mind. So mm-hmm. I look forward to whomever needs a check-in. And um, sometimes I'm amazed at them calling just to say, this is what I've done because of what we did. This is what I understand. That's all I wanted to say to you, that it really does work. So that's yes, kind of who yes. I am. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. I can say that personally. Uh, and having that, the tools, we all keep, you know, those of us who've been in your chair talk about the tools, you know, and using those on a constant basis, like I had to go in my tools and I had to dug deep in my tools to manage this. But thankfully, <laughs> you were there that I could call and dust them off with, you know. And so, uh, you know, in what you were doing, I would anticipate that a large part of the processing of the mental health and the emotional health within the families and individuals that you were dealing with might have been grief and or trauma or correlated issues at the root. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, and um, we can go in different directions and we want to say kind of focus on grief tonight. And um, when you asked me to do this, the first thing that came to my mind was grief. What do you believe? Yes. That came to me instantly because oftentimes when I work with people who, let me say it this way, sometimes when I work with people, they don't even recognize that they are grieving, that that's Mm. what's really happening. Um, one of the, the clients that I think about often is a woman who, when she started working with me, she was 56, and she talked about her mother's death. She talked about crying, you know, when her mother's birthday comes around, crying when she thinks about her mother, and she was talking about it, you know, with a connection of what I saw in her way and understanding that that's what you do. And my question to her was, when did your mother die? And she was 56. Her mother had died when she was 16. Mm. And Mm. I said, so for the last 40 years, you still are crying? And she, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, her mother died in a car accident. So it was Mm. very traumatic and traumatizing. And for two and a half years, we worked on that. Because the state in which she was living, the grief place where she was stuck, had permeated her entire life, if you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And none of it was obvious to her that a lot of it was coming from the grief space. And mm-hmm. um, this is what I've realized oftentimes talking with people, first to help them recognize the possibility that it could be grief. And then once we've identified that, find the ways to help them process it in a healthy way. And Mm -hmm. that's why I I say, what do you believe? And that's basically the question I ask. What do you, and we're going to talk about just specifically for a minute, at least the grief of losing a loved one. Because Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, that's kind of sort of where where they land when they think about grief. We know that it's 
not the only place that you experience grief. Yeah. Though it's the most common place where people believe grief lives. And so my question is, what do you believe about death and dying? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, when you said it, I, I, I'm like you, I saw like myriad roads leading from that question. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's like a big gun open, <laughs> open intersection to that can pivot in lots of directions. So even as you were talking about this woman who was experiencing an ongoing sadness for so long, um, not only what we believe grief is, but then what we believe about ourselves and how we're handling the grieving or not handling the grieving, what others believe we are to look like during our grief process, right? Like there's so many uh, layers of how our mental frameworks and the emotional weight that we put behind those mental frameworks shape our entire reality experience through grief and beyond. Uh, just briefly last week, our our conversational guest, Miami, her son um, completed, uh, you know, he ended his life through a self-inflicted, uh, in, you know, I don't know what the appropriate word is now um, in terms of suicide. I think it's said a little more sensitively in terms of the act of doing that. But even the teachings and the belief systems about, especially if you're churched, what it means for your soul or your salvation can make the grief conversation so much more challenging for the person to reconcile the physical loss because then there is this judgment weight that can come with that. Or, you know, your belief that you failed your child or, or loved one somehow, like a, a terminally ill loved one, that you should have done more. I should have been there. I should have gone home. Or, I sh-, you know, all those beliefs yeah. can mm-hmm. exacerbate and make it intensely more painful, I think, as a journey. Well, and that's why I pose that question when I'm beginning to do the grief work with anyone because a lot of what you're saying in a a more basic understanding because people aren't always aware that you're living inside of your belief system. People tend to just live and feel as if what they're experiencing is just there never really stopping to examine how did I get there? How did I get to to this belief? So based on where they are spiritually, religiously, and all of what we are thinking about and what we are talking about at this point, what I want to do is I want to bring that to the conscious. Okay. So we talk about what do you believe happens after someone dies? Mm-hmm. And that could be an hour conversation or a year's conversation based on a lot of different avenues that you do go down. Though mm-hmm. it is the beginning of the examination because a lot of people don't say these things out loud. There's not a lot of spaces in which you can go in and have these kinds of conversations because for the most part, people tend to 
think that it's private. They don't want to uh, invade someone's space. You know, um, I had a, a family member to die a while ago, and uh, I talked to a close relative, and I was thinking if I was going to see her at the wake. And she said, I don't go to the wake, and I don't usually go to the family for the first couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why? She said what she's observed is that when someone dies, everybody rushes to the family, to the house, and they're there, to the whole funeral, and all of those ins and outs. And she said, over the years, I noticed that after that is over, the first couple of weeks, no one tends to go back and check on the ones who are left. Mm -hmm. She says, so I've decided that's my job. Mm -hmm. So she said, after all of the food has been taken, after all of the sitting up and going to the wake and carrying all of this, she said, then I go. And then Mm -hmm. for the next two weeks, I make sure that I show up. And I was like, wow, that is Mm -hmm. intense. Mm Because I never thought about it in that sense. So, again, it goes back to individually, how do you really understand death? What Mm -hmm. is your belief about what should happen around death? Because when you get to the guilt, when you get to the blame, when you get to the anger, all of that is coming from your belief system. Mm -hmm. All of that is coming from what you've been taught. However, mm-hmm. if you've never stopped to examine it, it's very difficult to process it in a healthy way because for the most part, the way, from my experience, we've been taught, it lends itself to a lot of shame, blame, guilt, and judgment. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's why I'm always anxious to get inside of that belief system and begin to work that out for them to really begin to say, well, yeah, that's what I've always thought. Yeah, that's what I was always told. However, that is that. However, today, do you still agree with that? Is that still part of what you mm-hmm. have That, that has to learned? be a very tender place to be, like, you know, to be in the emotions after a loss and then to begin to – examine self more so than say the life of the person lost as the the focus because a lot of us I don't think give ourselves permission to be self-focused in that process uh, people put their own processing aside to handle the business of the, the affairs if it's part of their task or to handle the children or other family members who are grieving and not to sit with self to say and examine and begin to do the work of uncovering that framework. That seems very, very tender in that place. And, that's, and that is why a large percentage of people live in grief far too long because for that very reason. And oftentimes, especially if it's a close relative or a close friend, you know, you don't even stop to pay attention to yourself. You just kind of go on automatic, and then I go back to the same thing. You fall back on what you were taught. 
and you fall back on manners and you fall back on what you believe is expected because it was your mother. And you fall back on, you know, all of these things that you may not even want to do because it's no longer a part of what you believe you need to do. Then you do it because you believe you should do it. I remember when my oldest daughter's father died, and he he was very ill at the end of his life, and he ended up weighing like 60 pounds. And um, she said, I don't want to see him like that, but I'm going to go to his funeral anyway, even though I don't want to go. And Mm -hmm. so I said, well, if you don't want to go, why would you go? She said, I don't want people to think that I didn't love him. She was his only child. And so, of course, you know, I had a conversation with her about that. Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) What I basically said to her was, if you are clear that he loves you and you are clear that you love him, then going to his funeral just to satisfy what people might think is not a reason in my book to go. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't want to see him like that. I want to remember him uh, like the last time mm-hmm. I saw him. You see, and I had mm-hmm. similar experience many years before, and this may be uh, the foundation or the root of how I've come up to get to this place on how I look at death and dying, because mm-hmm. it is probably, if number, if not number one, that's number two, most emotional time that we find ourselves in. And it is uh, one of the things that we carry the longest if it's not managed in a healthy way. And it absolutely Mm -hmm. shows itself up. Um, I was reading an article the other day because I know I was going to do this and I like to go back and look at some more (laughs) of the current information. And one of the things that it said that wasn't surprising to me was that – Unresolved grief has inflammation. It can cause inflammation in your body. And that if you, you know, experience a grief and it's not resolved in a healthy way, your body starts aching and you have joint pains and all of these physical Mm. manifestations that comes from that because we are interconnected, body, soul, mind, spirit, all of that. So. Mm -hmm. It, it 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 wasn't surprising to read that. It just reinforced what I believe the work that I've done to help people is to be able to get inside of you and figure it out and make decisions that may be contrary to what you've been taught mm-hmm. or what you have believed before you had the chance to examine your beliefs. Mm-hmm. I've got I've got two like things that come to mind as you were sharing about your daughter and and also a similar experience for yourself is that, you know, I had a dear friend who passed away young when we were in our late 20s, and the way that her service was conducted made me very angry on many, many levels uh, in response to because it did not resonate with who I knew her to be to me, and there were lots of issues, you know, and then 
uh, a decade later, two dear friends that are like a brother and sister to me, to me. I had the privilege of spending time with their mother um, in the final months of her life. And when she did pass away, it was like, because she was an academic person, the university where she had been on faculty kind of overtook the grief ceremonial process and took it hijacked for them in a way their personal experience of grieving their mother. Now, we were able to do a private honoring that was much more in keeping for them, but then them having to, again, show up, if you will, for the public version of the grief experience made them upset and angry, of course, as well. And then if you fast forward to post-pandemic, the lack of opportunity for people to come together to grieve has been just as anger-inducing as the the opposite side of that coin. You know, we we weren't able to grieve those losses in the first year of the pandemic, and that in in and of itself was something to grieve the the structure that we believe that should be given in terms of observance of of people when they do pass on. So it, it, yeah, it's like two sides of the the same coin in terms of the grief observation. Oh, absolutely. I was very concerned about that um, when I was observing what the pandemic did to families. Um, of course, I got uh, quite a few calls around that time, and people weren't even allowed to go in the hospital. In the very beginning, they weren't even given the bodies back. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So absolutely, that was a very, very, very unsettling time. And for some of the people I work with during that time, it's the same thing for me. Um, like talking with them about what do you believe happened. And Mm -hmm. I think the thing that is most important is to help people understand that you can change what you believe. Changing Mm -hmm. what you believe, Mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing. It's not anything wrong. Now, when you talk about understanding grief, from the five stages, and I use that quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, you can read five stages. Sometimes they say seven stages. Mm-hmm. However, this is the same thing when I'm talking with anyone to help them begin to look at it from the denial space, the anger place, the bargaining place, the depression, and then the last step is acceptance. And it goes back to the same thing. What ends up happening oftentimes is we begin to examine the relationship with the person that died because Mm -hmm. that's where some of these emotions come from. And when we get into the understanding of, if you talk about religion, you know, that heaven and hell and where's that person going And if the person who died lived in that space of religion, it's a little easier when they're both on the same page when it comes to religion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you have someone who is religious, 
and the person who died is not religious, that brings some level of distress to the one that's left alive because mm-hmm. now they're concerned about mm-hmm. whether the person's going to go to hell. And, you know, and I've had to process that with people mm-hmm. where you have to give them the opportunity to realize that that's beyond their control and the understanding that there's some things that are beyond their control. And what's even more difficult for people sometimes is when they have moved away from a certain belief system and then someone dies, they have, they want to almost come back to it mm-hmm. so then they can find peace that the person is going to heaven that they used to believe even. And so those are the kinds of things that we begin to process. And when we talk about the the stages of grief, denial is one that's the first. And it's very difficult for some people sometimes to even wrap their minds around the reality that the person is gone. And so when mm. we talk about denial, we want to be able to move from denial and help them get to a place where they could at least understand what life could possibly be like because that's another part of when it's someone very, very close to you and you have not been able to process that the person wouldn't want you to be suffering for most cases. And sometimes we get stuck in grief in the sense of not being able to process. I know I've talked to a few people when it's a parent, a mother most specifically, and I've heard myself say several times, your mother would not want you to still be crying. Your mm-hmm. mother would not want you to still be suffering. She would want you to be. And so that is part of how you begin to understand when you now are examining the relationship. Because then we go into, let's talk about the relationship of the person who's lost. Now, it's very difficult to help, though it's very it's a part of the process when it's a child, especially a young child mm-hmm. for a parent. And I have to go back to the belief system of what happened. And people have varied belief systems, as you could well imagine, of what happens after someone dies. And that mm-hmm. is the space in which it's easy to work once I can help them establish what they believe. It's just, so much comes up because I, I was thinking that there are actually some cultures and belief systems that you do need to be in observance in the crying and the start. They you, there is a suffering at the loss of the elder loved one or the loved one that is expected, and so freeing oneself from that belief system that says, you know, the sackcloth and ashes, the shrouded corner over with the uh, sad pictures and music, No, you know, not a joyful thing, that suffering, martyr kind of experience of loss, 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 reinforced, that can be just as strong a belief system for some people as well. You know, when we're looking at the international kind of way that different cultures observe grief, you know, um, 
carrying the burden. I, I just see so many opportunities for the burden to be increased from almost any angle <laughs> from those belief systems. Can we ever escape them? <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, I think once, because I mean, I remember growing up, we used to um, cover all the mirrors in the house. I can remember doing that. Of course, I didn't know when I was a little girl why they were doing that. And then the, let's say the wife had to wear black for months. Literally, that's the only, I remember that for quite some time. I think I was a teenager before I saw some of that given, you know, moving away mm-hmm. from that. And those are the kinds of things that I've always questioned. How did we stop doing that if it was such a practice? And the answer is very simple because our beliefs around those things begin to change. And that's what I usually bring up to some people of things that they recognize and they remember doing that's no longer being done now. And that's my attempt to help them begin to understand that you can change what you believe. And in the same context, you can create new traditions you can create your own. Like my daughter said, I'm going to be sad every October 7th when it's my dad's birthday. And I said to her, wow, you've already made that decision? Hmm. I said, what if you decide not to be sad on October 7th and decide it's going to be a day of rejoicing and a day where you do something in honor of him? And she looked at she was, what, 24 when he died. She was 24. She was an adult. And she was like, wow. And I said to her, I said, see, you fell right into that pattern. That's Mm -hmm. that's not an absolute. You don't Mm -hmm. have to be. However, if we don't pay attention, if we are not brought to a sense of awareness that all of these things that is inside of us that we've been taught and we are living them out, it's not necessarily irreversible. We can change those things. We can mm-hmm. make decisions about how we're doing it. And, 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 and let me say this. We're not talking right or wrong. We're not right. talking good or bad. Mm-hmm. We're talking difference. And if it's working for you in a place where it leaves you in a healthy space, because mm-hmm. sadness for me is not a place you want to live on a constant basis. Right. I think that there are things that make you sad, absolutely, and Mm -hmm. you process that sadness, though if you come to me, I'm going to want to help you to live in happiness far more than you live in sadness. Mm -hmm. Sadness doesn't go away. It's just a space in which you don't want to be in for a very long time, because we go back to the same thing. The body responds to our emotional, psychological body, sends out certain hormones mm-hmm. when we are in an emotional space. It's almost like if you're going to surgery, everybody wants you to be in a good mood. They want you to be happy. They want you, mm-hmm. Because it tends to help the recovery process. Our bodies are intertwined. Everything connects. Everything is together. We are holistic creatures. And so those are the kinds of understanding that we would want to process. And the, the 
even the process of how we look at life, in my opinion, lends to how we respond to death, how we respond to loss. You know, the expectation mm-hmm. of it. We we want to be able to understand that the one day that we have, the second that we have, we do our best. We mm-hmm. interconnect with the ones that we love and we care about to the best of our abilities. Because we can't wake up tomorrow and they can be gone. And right. if we are conscious that it's a gift and you want to absolutely take care of that gift, then because this leaving from the physical is so beyond our powers and so beyond our control, then mm-hmm. we control those things that we can control, which is the time that we have with the people each and every day. And I think for me, that's the kind of information that I attempt to share is that pay attention to what you're doing while the person's here. Understand what your belief is about what a healthy relationship looks like. Know what you mean when you say, I love you. Know what you mean when you say, I'm there for you. And if you're making all of those absolute commitments and doing those things to the best of your ability, for me at least, it tends to make that change that loss different. Um, Mm -hmm. My dad left in 2019, and I don't know if grieving is even a part of what I can say. I'm sure that's what it would be called to some degree. However, I really don't feel sadness. And it's, again, because my dad and I had a relationship for 10 years or so where we talked about him going, because he was ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) He had planned his his funeral, and he said to me, don't put all this money in the ground. I want you to put me in a wooden box and just throw some sand over me. You know, he (laughs) talked about, now he wouldn't talk to anybody else in the family like he (laughs) talked to me about it, because I was on the same page with him because I said the same thing to my children and I wasn't nowhere near my dad's age. However, you don't know. And I wanted Mm -hmm. my children to be comfortable with the fact that I'd rather you spend time valuing the relationship we have today. I'd rather us really be genuine with each other Mm -hmm. so that when that happens, And I think, again, in the other side of the coin, when I'm reaching and talking with families who have lost someone, then I want to help them connect to the value of that relationship and the understanding of what that person would want from them. And sometimes, Joelle, we have to rebuild a relationship. We have Mm. to deal with forgiveness. Mm -hmm. We have to deal with understanding. And and it's not just forgiving the person who's who is left. Sometimes we have to deal with that person who still here, forgiving themselves about a relationship that was not healthy. Mm-hmm. That is a big. That is big. We say rebuild the relationship, but also for something, it's even building a posthumous relationship because there are a lot of instances where there was an absent parent or family member and there was never an opportunity to 
build what you would envision or have wished due to whatever circumstances. So it's not, it's almost like a, we can create a fiction of the relationship then in the void of that. <laughs> and that may not be a healthy fiction that we build in that space. Uh, you know, and as you said, rebuilding uh, what happened and transpired in the years leading up to that. That's, that is huge work. Yes, and, and because you cannot not relate. So there's always a relationship. It's just being able to describe the nature of the relationship because a lot of times people will say, I had no relationship with my dad or I had no relationship with my mom or I have no relationship with whomever. And I told them, I will tell them all the time, that's humanly impossible because you cannot not relate. You relate to the chair you're sitting in, you relate to your bed, you relate to your TV. There's a relationship. It's just understanding how that relationship is put together. And so when you have someone that you care about that died and the relationship was not healthy, then that brings on all different levels of grieving. And that's Mm -hmm. what you work out. Um, I'm working with a client currently now, as a matter of fact, my client in Guyana, and um, she's in her mid-40s, and her dad and mom divorced when she was uh, probably 10 or 12, and her dad was estranged. And so now her dad has popped back up in her life, and he's very ill and needs support. And so she says to me, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not able to do it. He was not there for me, blah, 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 blah. And so I said to her, I said, what if he was just a regular old person who Mm -hmm. needs your help? Mm -hmm. Would you help him? And she said, yeah. I said, so Mm -hmm. why are you refusing to help your dad? And she said, because I'm angry with him. And I said, why? She said, because he was a horrible father. And again, he's not dead. However, we're talking about the relationship. And when we talk about it, a lot of her anger comes from the stories that her mom told her. And I said to her, your mother was giving you the results of a broken marriage. That's her Mm -hmm. husband. Have you ever thought about getting to know him as your father, separate of being her husband? You see, and so that's some of what I'm talking about when I say, because I've said to people oftentimes that when someone dies, it changes the dynamics of a lot. And if you don't have the ability to figure it out, then that's where you can get stuck in grief so easily because you could have been angry with them for a very long time. However, Mm -hmm. something switches in the brain once that person dies. So that's the whole body of work around grief. Then the other side of the coin is when you love and care for someone and you had a very enriching, satisfying relationship, that's a whole other side of grieving at that point. So that's why, for me, we have to figure out the relationship. We have to look at what you believe. We have to look at how you place that relationship in your life. Where was the value in that relationship or the lack of value in that relationship when we begin to look at how do we then process the grief? Mm -hmm. All of that becomes vitally important 
so that you can know what direction to go in to do the work. Mm-hmm. Does that make I was, sense? Yeah, I was just saying you have, it's pivot on a dime because the anger towards to say that parent of absent or or uh, not great parenting skills, the anger is directed to them until that death point, and then the anger can easily then be turned inward to be yeah, angry at yourself. So you pivot instantly because you're still here to then direct that stream of anger back to, and then you bring in the companion of guilt and then the shame of that anger and you judge yourself for all of that. And it all happened in the twinkling of getting that phone call that says that person is no longer there. Right. And then uh, for a lot of us, we have no place to go process that. We have, again, all these beliefs about what you should or shouldn't do, what you should or shouldn't talk about, what is your business and ain't nobody else's business. Private and we carry, <laughs> yes, we carry all of that. I said, you know, I say a lot of times, I say a black person can have everybody in their family die, the house burns down, the car breaks down, they lose their job. All in the same day, then you say, "How you feel?" Oh, I'm 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 I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> How can you be? How can right. you be okay? Right. There's no way you. However, that goes to all of what keeps us so very very sick, not just emotionally and psychologically, physically, because this stuff stays with us. It doesn't just melt away into nothingness. Mm-hmm. And the, all of those belief systems that prohibits us from talking about it. It's, and when we do cry, and we may roll around on the floor and cry. However, mm-hmm. when we get up and when we're done crying, we're not talking. We're not talking. Mm-hmm. And it did it did it go anywhere? Did, you know, it might have been cathartic in the moment, but did it really assuage the grief? or move the grief into a a different phase. My Uh, point exactly. You mentioned like the the sadness part, and I thought about sad. There is a term, seasonal affective disorder, right? And it's used to Mm -hmm. reference when the sun is no longer out, there is a cellular lack of vitamin D, production mm-hmm. in the cells and you get a special lamp that helps to generate that because some people get more depressed seasonally and it's been acknowledged. Yeah. Well, there is a season of grief in the body that can make that return appearance. And it may not be at the point of death. It may be like every summer because those were the three or four months that you spent tending to your loved one in the hospital for an extended period of time or dealing with, like, say, a terminal situation or the month immediately after a tragedy. So seasonally, you can feel less happy, even if you're not consciously aware that you're, it's your season of sadness. And then right, other right. times we know, like, okay, if it's Mother's Day, this person is going to experience a low-key depression. We all know it. They're going to withdraw. They're going to be sad. They're going to, you know, call off work, things like that, right? Because they're 
the season of pain, the season of sorrow, the season of grief has revisited themselves at their at their and either we, invitation. And we take it as okay, though. Yeah. And we take that as okay. That's not an okay thing to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's like my daughter had decided that she was going to be sad. She's not now because I, she's like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Mm-hmm. I said, yes. And I said, you can celebrate. You don't have to be sad. That's not, you know, an absolute. And there are people who do that. You know, this is the anniversary of my mom's death. So every year I just go in the room and I don't come out for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows it. And we tiptoe around it. And then, you know, we be respectful of them because they always are like this, right? And, and not recognizing that you are absolutely sending toxins into your bloodstream. You are absolutely damaging your vital organs. And Mm. this is the kind of understanding that I say a lot, especially to black women. We got to be able to process our emotions. We can't just keep piling them on top of each other. Mm. And I've not had a child to die. So I can't say to you, I know how you feel, because I don't. What I can say to you is that that has to be very emotionally heavy. And please let me help you process that to a healthier space. You didn't hear me say, help you forget it. You didn't hear me say, help you get over it. You didn't hear Mm -hmm. me say any of those things. I'm saying, Mm -hmm. let me help you process it to a healthier space. That's Mm -hmm. about as much as I can help you do. Because there is a healthier space. Yes, you Mm -hmm. take your whatever length of time that you need to be okay. However, in that space, be thinking, I need to get some help. This has Mm -hmm. been whatever. You know, and I can't say what that time is for anyone because I don't know. What I can say is that if you at least are recognizing as you're going through it, this is a space where I don't want to stay, then that will increase your chances of getting the support you need to move away from that. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that. I don't want to be sad anymore. I wish I wasn't still sad. I wish I didn't get weepy. You know, I've I've heard that many, many voices say. I wish it didn't still affect me so much. You'd think that I would have been able to heal that magical, mysterious heal point, (laughs) that mysterious bell that we ring at the top of the little thing, like at the carnival, like we get that heal point and now it's done. I'm healed, (laughs) you know? I don't know. I don't know nothing about that one. <laughs> and and that, that same 56-year-old woman that I talked about earlier, um, she had not talked to her mother's two sisters, um, who I think today are still alive, because the woman now was 56. We worked together for about two years. She was 58, and now she's 65. So that's how long it's been. And we still, she does do her check-in, so that's, I, I've kept up with her in that way. Um, what happened, though, she had not talked to her aunt for 40 years. Oh. And um, in the work that we were doing, what happened was she was the only girl in the family. 
and she felt that her aunts just abandoned her. And, um, of course, her father shut down, her brothers. Nobody was there. She just kind of took on the role of becoming the mother. She did the laundry. She cooked the food. And then when she turned 18, she left and went to college and basically never went back and had never talked to these women. And through our process, through the understanding, the whole process, and one of the major things was for her to recognize that her aunts were grieving too, that the death of their sister was so traumatic, they didn't even know what to say. You know, because, again, people get paralyzed sometimes by this, Mm -hmm. and they don't – and and just – resistance is easy. You resist and you say to yourself, I need to check on that child. And and you don't. And then, you know, two years later, she's going away to college. So it's kind of like, well, I would check on her, but she's in college. And before you know it, 40 years passed. She has not spoken. And we were able to get her to a place where she called her aunt. Mm. And she went to visit them. And they mm. all cried. And oh, that yeah. cry was a good cry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. The two sisters were still living near each other. They were still in contact. And I remember one of the times she called me after visiting them, she said, they gave me pictures of my mom. Mm. She said, they gave me this, and they told me stories. Mm-hmm. This is 40 years later. Mm. And she was saying how... She wished she had gotten help before if she knew. Because she came to me as a business professional to talk about the stagnation in her job. (laughs) Right. I was like, okay. You want me to help you get the first promotion? Let's do that. (laughs) Right, right. And she got the promotion still. However, it took a lot of other stuff, you know, well, stagnation, right? I, you know, in the work that I do, of course, we talk about, you know, energy and spirit connection from a kind of different aspect. But whatever theme is running, it's not compartmentalized. So if you're not. stagnant in one area, you're stagnant in another. If you're angry about the lack of father relationship in your life, you're going to be angry about some other area where there is a paternalistic quality happening, either expected of you or others. That pattern is going to be right there. Yeah, it follows you everywhere. And that's what I tell people when I do corporate work. You know, people say, well, I think people should leave their emotions at the door. I think they should leave their business home. But I say, how is that done? I said, no, I said, what what I can help you and your employees and the company and all these people do is learn to manage them in a professional way. That I can do. Because you can't just leave who you are. You pull your arm off and sit it over here in the corner and come back and pick it up at the work. That's not how that's done. We're all one person. It all intertwined. Yes, and some people have an enormous amount of personal issues that does impede on their professional life, then that person needs to go see a professional, not just, mm-hmm. you know, get fired or keep getting fired um, mm-hmm. or keep getting poor performances. There's something more in-depth going on. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's what I do in the corporate work that I do is to help people recognize just some of the same things that we're talking about because if you have a grief issue at home, 
personal life, it's going to follow you to work. It's going to be right there at your desk with you. It's going to go to the water cooler. It's going to go to the meeting. It's going to show up. And, and Mark, uh, I'm going to also schedule you in a later conversation after I've had a couple people already book in for the subsequent shows for the next couple of weeks. But I do want to then take a hard turn into grief not related to the loss of people because you know uh, when we talk about corporate and workplace and who we are in that space and what happens when there are job changes corporate changes structural differences beyond our control other people dealing with their grief and process that's that's it's interrelated, but it's very separate. So we're bookmarking this for non-physical death-related grief part two with Kalina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I can get on your calendar, please, ma'am, we're going to go ahead and uh, have, have part two of this discussion. Um, I was thinking how when we see somebody crying or sad or in that tragic moment, like we immediately know, okay, well, let me touch them on the arm. If, if you know what I'm saying, or like, Ooh. I'm so sorry. And we speak to them in that moment because we are touched empathetically by that emotion that we see flowing in that moment. We allow ourselves to be emotionally connected to them. But as we move away from that, say, moment, we begin to be very uncomfortable with emotions. So there's this whole, well, I don't know what to say to them. I can see that they're hurting. I don't know what words would be helpful. I don't want to offend them and make them angry. Um, you know, we, we become uncomfortable because we don't have the language or the tools then to really be effective in what we say or offer to people because we haven't been taught. Well, one of the things I would say, too, it goes back to the relationship you have with a person, and it also goes to the value you place in the relationship. You know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. if you don't know me that well, then touching might not be the thing that you do. Right. If right. you have never touched me before in our relationship, that might not be the thing. You see? Um, mm -hmm. And so the way I would approach that would say you would have to assess the relationship and I would move on in that space in the same way I would move on in the relationship because if you're the same two people, then you kind of know what to do next. You kind of know what to say next. I think what happens oftentimes is that that whole emotional flooding kind of takes us off our games, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. if I know you well enough, then I'm going to kind of know where we are with mm -hmm. that. And, again, me being me, if it's someone that I feel as if I know, then I'm going to know what to do. If I'm a two or three steps back from knowing that person, then mm -hmm. I may give them the opportunity to ask, mm -hmm. is there anything I can do to yeah. help you at this moment? Mm -hmm. 
know, and if the person is not able to, huh? That's that's that is important because, again, sometimes there are structures and belief systems in place that this is the protocol that happens when the person we don't ask do they need a refrigerator full of food. And things. We, we believe that that's what you're supposed to do because the person is going to be so busy grieving. And what we end up doing then is overwhelming that person in a moment when that's not what they necessarily needed. And I had a I very good doing that one thing there. <laughs> well, I had a good therapist. You're not the only good therapist I've had, but I was, you know, really feeling this emotional thing about, oh, my friend is going to be so, you know, sad. I don't know how she's going to process and deal with this. And she was like, hold on. <laughs> First of all, you're doing a lot. Have you asked her? Have yeah, you asked. checked with her? as to what she needs. And I was like, oh, yeah. wait, you mean make this about her and not me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> in that moment, uh, yeah. right? But then later yeah. it was like we learned to have that conversation. And sometimes my friend would say, you know what, just, just be here, right? We don't have to do anything. Other times it would be just listen I don't need you to solve anything. I don't need you to go run down the road and book me an appointment. Don't bring no fried chicken. (laughs) Don't what? Don't Don't bring bring any fried chicken. (laughs) Right? Don't bring any more casseroles, right? You know, but that stopping point to say, you know, yes, what do you need? And then when the person says, you know what, I don't know. Being okay with that, too, and say, you know what, that's okay. I'll check with them again in a little while. Maybe they're not at the place of knowing what they need. Maybe they're just right. in it right now and overwhelmed. Right. And that's what I'm saying. It, it For me, it goes back to the quality of the relationship and the ability to say that, you know, what do you need? What can I do for you? You know, and if they say, I don't know nothing, then just be there. Because mm-hmm. I think being there, and once you attempted to ask those questions, is the next best thing that you could do. Because believe me, even in the middle of grief, if someone doesn't want you there, they'll ask you to leave. Mm-hmm. Because that, the energy that you may bring that they don't want, they can say that before they could say what they want. You can almost say what you don't want easier in that mm. space. Yes. And you can say what you want. You see? Right. If, if, someone, if someone's in there that's bringing an energy that's not wanted, then you say, can you please leave and go back to wherever you were before? So that's why, again, and, and another thing, too, if we begin to have more of these kinds of conversations, if we begin to make this more of a public knowledge kind of an information, I think that then we can get the tools. We can learn how to be more supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting tradition, this whole weight and what people do, you know, how they flood to the house and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. <laughs> it <laughs> much as it I is very interesting. I mean, again, like the disruptions in the last couple of years, 
and I will say this, the price of funeraling <laughs> and putting someone to rest has caused an evolution and really a rapid evolution in the last two years, of course, because of structural gathering uh, restrictions. But uh, mm-hmm. some of the things it has disrupted for good uh, from the industry, uh, the business of death and loss and, and grief, part of it, I think, right. personally. You know, it might be painful to some people, but for others, it actually has been a relief to not have to do that. Right. I, I don't do that for many years now. And um, like when my father passed in 2019, um, people were like, you were serious. You, you, you didn't go to your father's funeral? And, you know, you were. And my whole thing about that is, again, the way that I understand grief, the way that I really process the world. Um, I had no real reason to put myself through that. You know, I heard mm-hmm. about my brother about passing out, and I heard about my mother passing out. For me, mm-hmm. and I say that, no right, no wrong, no good, no bad, just different. Um, I was very clear that my father was ill, and when it got to the place where he was suffering here, I was very comfortable that he transcended and I was very clear that I loved him immensely, and I received love from him indescribably. I can't even put it into words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still enjoy who he is, and I use the present tense, in my life. Mm-hmm. I bring him back in the room as often as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I I. I, I I don't. I never really cried. A few tears passed down, but every time I would think about crying, I think about something that would make me laugh because mm-hmm. he was super cool. I mean, he he absolutely is still a constant part of my enjoyment, my support, the way I see the world, what I learned. You know, um, all of these things, and I'm choosing to only remember the great. There wasn't a lot of not great. When I was a teenager, I wanted to absolutely shoot him in the head, but I was a teenager. <laughs> well, that's what teenagers right. do. What teen doesn't? <laughs> right. You know, and, um, and we talked about that a lot of times and laugh about just how angry he would make me because he was so very strict. And now I grew up and my children say, you worse than granddaddy. Yeah, I probably am. So, because I learned from the best. And those are the kind of things I think about. And I've had friends and other family members, and I work very hard. I work very diligently to only place the pleasantness of who these people are in my life. Um, The missing them Physically, is just a part of a human experience. Mm-hmm. I can't say that I don't miss them physically. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What I can say, though, is that because of my belief system that I've created around what I believe about death and dying, makes it far more pleasurable to have met all of them. Mm-hmm. I absolutely my goddaughter's daughter left at nine years old. Nine. Mm-hmm. She had mm-hmm. 
aneurysm at nine. Oh my. Oh yeah, my. That was that was just unbelievable mm-hmm. when it happened. And um I mm-hmm. when I worked at Atlanta Housing Authority, there was an argument between a boyfriend and girlfriend and he decides to kick the door in and shoots in the apartment and kills her four year old. And I facilitated that funeral as the social worker for the Atlanta Housing Authority. I'd never been to a child's funeral at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's that whole understanding that I have now created around what I believe about death and dying brings me to a place of okayness because it's beyond our control. Because you can decide how you feel about it. You can decide how you allow it to affect you. You really can. It doesn't matter what you grew up believing or what you were taught or even what you read last week. You could still decide yourself. Mm-hmm. And I always go for happy and healthy. That's what I go mm. for. You see, that's my choice too, you know, but sometimes people don't know what happy and happy and healthy looks like, you know, to even begin with. But I was thinking about the, the as you were saying, like it's about giving oneself permission. And that's for any of the things, permission to to change your belief and be okay, to let yourself off of an expectation from yourself to give yourself permission to not meet the expectations of others. Like you gave your, you gave your daughter, you brought to her mind the opportunity for her to give herself permission to not do that and be okay. And just knowing that one person in the face of all the others would not judge her probably helped her to give herself the permission needed to move into that space of shifting the belief. So it kind of goes to what we believe the ramifications of our changes are when we do pivot. Yes. And, you know, we talk about a lot, you know, the shame, blame, guilt, and judgment, the right and wrong. And and most people don't recognize, Joelle, that they're living inside of that dichotomy, that shame, blame, guilt, and judgment and that right and wrong world. That shame, blame, guilt, and judgment, I call it the three sisters and the brother. It premiates every part of our bodies, you know, um, and and living inside of that. And like I said, it happened to me when um, I was actually raised by my great-grandmother. My mother is a teenage mother, and her mother died when she was 13, so she lived with her grandmother, which was my grandmother, and my great-grandmother. And so when she gave birth to me, my great-grandmother took me. They all live in the same house. However, mm-hmm. my great-grandmother pretty much raised me. I called her mama, and I called my mother by her first name until I was in the first grade. And in 1975, I left to go to college. And so I went to tell her bye. She was 97 and I was 17. And Mm. she said to me, she said, okay, 
I can go home. Now, she went blind when I was nine, so she would put her hands in your face and on your shoulder to see mm-hmm. where you were and all this. And, you know, that was so calming to me, her rubbing my face. And, mm-hmm. you know, she could tell that you grew and your face mm-hmm. was changing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It was amazing how she could do that. And so when um, we had taught her by August of 1975, she said, okay, I can go home now. And she said, when I go home, don't you come back. You stay out there and you live your life. Mm -hmm. December of 1975, she went to sleep one night, never been sick, never in the hospital a day in her life. She went to sleep and she didn't wake up the next morning. Mm. My mother called me and she's yelling and she's screaming. And um, I said, well, Grandma told me she was going home. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. And if you could imagine in 1975, that's, you know, forever ago. I was four. Um, I was four. <laughs> um, yeah, I was 17. And um, so I did not go to her funeral. I did not come back home. And I didn't even have the understanding of the ramifications of what that was until my mother became very angry with me. And I was just as stern with her saying grandmama told me she was leaving and she told me not to come back mm-hmm. and I didn't go and you fast forward to my daughter in 2004 and I told her I said you know the story I'm going to tell you yes mommy mm-hmm. I said I believe I experienced that to tell you this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I told her I said you, you you have to be okay. My mother could not get me to come to my grandmother's funeral, my great-grandmother's funeral. I was mm-hmm. not coming. And it wasn't, I didn't even feel defiant. Right. Right. Yes. right. And I, like I said earlier, I said that probably was the root of who I've become because I've absolutely gone back to that because that was so powerful. The more I tell it, as often as I think about it, it gives me power. She had completed. That's why, again, you you fraction in whatever you want to be part of the equation. Mm-hmm. She was she was done, and she was okay with going. She wasn't going until I was grown. Right. You know? She had a goal. <laughs> her, other thing, her other thing was, I got to live till this girl's grown. I got, that was her other thing she said all the time. Mm-hmm. I got to live till this girl's grown. She was the last of 22 children. Oh, my. Wow. Exactly. Her wow. And it was 97, you said? Yes. Her sister died in February of 75. They lived together until the sister died in February, and she moved over. So you think about all of these other traditions that were in place even more strongly at that time about death. Mm-hmm. However, she had empowered me to supersede all of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even understand it at the time. I was just 17. I mean, but the more I think about it, the longer I've lived. I'm 64 now. Mm-hmm. and. I'm I'm such a different person than the family members that I still live with. And I often go back and attempt to, you know, track that down. And I know I believe with every fiber of my being that particular situation 
is part of what propels me to be able to say you can decide how you allow whatever is going on to affect you. You can make a change. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a memory of my great-grandmother being in a coffin. Mm-hmm. The last time I saw was that day when I went to tell her bye. Right, right. You know, I was, as you're talking about, you know, from 1970, your grandmother in like 1875, you know, 1875, 77, around there being then, like remembrance age of a teenager in the early early 1900s, the things that she saw that, you know, were the framework then that she used in what she distilled onto you. And then the conversations that began to arise in the 70s and 80s about emotional intelligence, acknowledging the fact that we need to be able to express ourselves instead of being diagnosed as mental things and the nuances of conversation that can happen now i'm at 50 the way that therapy is seen now with teletherapy and eap and all of those i can't imagine you know a man or a woman who entered the workplace in the labor pool in the 50s saying i need to go talk to the the team counselor (laughs) off the floor right you know that that just especially you know we're going to have a different conversation about men and grief but the freedom the liberation of the emotional self to be as fully formed as we wish it to be, as healthy as we wish it to be, that is what you gave your daughter in your generational inheritance. And then you spoke about with your client what you have been blessed to see the manifestation of when you saw a family with six and seven and eight-year-old kids now have 20-something-year-old kids who are not afraid to talk about seeing their therapist and who will pick up the phone and will call you because they've been destigmatized from the whole you've got emotional issues or things going on kind of reality that we used to be bound into. Yes. Yes. It's it's a... I credit my great grandmother for all of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, of course that's a, kind of a joke. Um, I have one uh, client, and when I met her, she was 16, and she is 26 now, and working on her master's in counseling. Mm. And I still talk with her because. When I first met her, she wouldn't speak to anybody. She was just angry. And her mama said, you know, she's taking her to a different therapist, and, you know, she was just angry, in deep, deep pain. And, of course, we worked that through, and I worked with her for about four years in maintenance program still. And maybe a year ago, her mom called me and Told me that she was getting married. I was like, wow. And then she said, you're not going to believe what she's majoring in college. I said, what? She said, psychology. I said, no, yeah. call me. <laughs> you know, and when she called me, we, we, we talked. And, and she said, I just didn't think it was going to help. 
And she said, it helped so much that I decided that, she didn't go to undergrad for that. Mm-hmm. She said, I decided that I want to help other people like it helped me. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that yeah. helps. Yes, because she's a whole nother generation that's going to at least go forth with that understanding. And that whole thing about grief and not being able to even process it is part of what happens when we get stuck in the understanding that this is how it's supposed to be. That's just how it has been. Mm -hmm. It is not how it's necessarily supposed to be. Definitely not how it has to stay. And that whole understanding of how we now have a place. And and let me commend you in the work that you're doing because you are definitely actively doing your part to invoke some level of change. I I do commend you because it's going to take all of us. And it's providing the forum, first of all, for knowledge sharing is very important. And that what any practitioner who's trying to help you, if it's improve your golf swing or, in, you know, improve your mood swing, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That is a knowledge passing on to somebody. And I, like your grandmother, she did that for you, right? In, in a way, oh, yeah. best therapy you ever got, right? In terms of your shaping of that. So um, for this kind of thing, it's not something you have to publicly be seen to experience it. You can listen to it in your own time and space. Um, it will reverberate from this moment is my hope that it's going to be like that book on the shelf that when someone needs it, you know, as a librarian, I can say, hey, please go check this conversation out. Uh, I, I'm not the therapist, but I talked to somebody who was really good about it, and I picked up some things. Maybe you'll pick up some things, and then you'll also have a resource to contact should you wish to go deeper. So it makes me very joyful to be able to be in this facilitatory position. Plus, I get to talk. <laughs> so, you know, I love to talk. But, um, <laughs> to, for practical uh, tools, let's, let's uh, kind of get specific here for a moment. For a person who has been listening and recognizes, you know, maybe I have been, what are, maybe not even I've been sad or something like that, but like if I want to begin to ask myself some journal prompt type questions to chew on around what do I believe, can you focus a little bit more from that what do I believe large, which can be kind of overwhelming, to something practical that a person can begin kind of kicking around in their energetic thought space? Well, um, I think that's the question. What would be the more specific thing is to figure out the topic. And we're talking about grief. What do I believe about grief? What do I believe grief is? You know, and then if we're talking about the loss of a person, what do I believe about death and dying? Mm-hmm. You know, because he says, I'm going to come back and talk about different kinds of grief. Because grief in its most basic sense is loss. Mm-hmm. And loss happens across the board. 
you know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to say something that's going to sound really weird. However, it was what came to my mind. I am losing the thickness of my hair. Mm-hmm. And I process that on a daily basis because I see myself on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this huge mound of thick hair. Now, mm-hmm. because my hair was so thick, most people won't walk up to me and say, hmm, she's losing her hair, right? right? However, I know that. And so I have to sit down and I have sat down and I had to talk to myself about what do I believe that does to me? Mm-hmm. Do I, am I thinking that I'm less attractive? Am mm-hmm. I thinking that that makes me look old? What do I believe? I've even attempted to have people show some locks in the front. Cause that's where they're coming out at in the front. Mm-hmm. And so what do I believe about losing my hair? How does that impact my sense of self, my sense mm-hmm. of self-worth, my definition of what beauty is? All of these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. You know, should I cut my locks and just, you know, would that even it out? You know, should I dye my hair like pink so nobody will notice? Whatever. <laughs> I have these conversations. Right, me, right. Yeah. Well, I was thinking so, about this. So, like, what do yeah. I, so it's like, what do I believe about losing blank? And yeah. that's very specific. You know, what, pardon me? Oh, what do, I, what, what do I believe about the changing of blank? Right. Mm. Yeah. That, the that loss of good... and or the changing of. Mm-hmm. Because it could be the yes. gaining. <laughs> like, what do I believe about the gaining of weight? <laughs> you know what I'm like, like, there's a lot, like, the grief yeah, of losing my younger, yeah. my younger fit self. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's... There's lots of lots of ways to then begin to examine very specifically what do I believe about the loss of my child? What do I believe about the loss of my parent? What do I believe about the loss of my job? You know, what yeah. do I believe about myself and my, my self-esteem? Do I feel a failure? Do I believe that I'm not worthy anymore? Because mm-hmm. of that, do I believe that I'm unlovable because my parent passed before I got an opportunity to receive love from them? Do I believe right. that I am not worthy of a spouse because my marriage ended and that there do I believe that something was wrong with me as a failure in that dynamic? Right. And it's, it's, it's so many different places. And that's why I'm saying if we have to become aware of really what do we believe across the board because it's happening and it's happening to us. We're not, we're not necessarily aware of it and we are responding to it because you cannot not respond. It's mm-hmm. just not being able to recognize what the responses are and what we are, where we are placing it in our psyche. Where is it landing in our body? How is it being, how is it manifesting itself 
in our bodies, and when we're not aware of it, it's almost impossible to do anything about it because you don't know that you even are experiencing it at that level. And when you were talking, one of the things I thought about is the aging process. Mm -hmm. And because, again, we don't talk about these things. When a person gets to a certain age, if they live long enough, they are then not able to live on their own anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we do well with that transition. You see? I would say not in this country. Yeah, I mean, not in this country. Yeah, I'm just talking about families specifically because families don't really stop to think what they're actually doing when they're telling somebody they got to come live with them even or they mm-hmm. got to go live in a nursing home. They're changing that person's whole identity, and mm-hmm. they have not given them any real preparation. They haven't given them any real knowledge of what, oh, oh my gosh, I've just seen it. Because um, I've worked with the elderly before also, and that is, that's not a pleasant place to be when you're at an age where you really can't take care of yourself and no one's uniquely aware of your level of grieving. No one's mm-hmm. really understanding the loss that you are experiencing based on a necessity. It's not even mm-hmm. make-believe. You really can't. However, it's there's a healthier process that's not happening. You know, what do mm-hmm. I believe about aging? What do I expect? You know, and mm-hmm. I'm now talking to my children about that, and it, it's not a common conversation. And I tell them things that, and I say to them, if I live long enough, this could possibly start happening, and then I want that to happen you know, because that's not the kind of conversations that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In in my family, there's been a very purposeful on the part of my parents push to deal with life and conversations very directly from a functional business standpoint in terms of the direction that are uh, the the information, the will, all the technical aspects of a person departing this plane were addressed when I was like in my 20s and my youngest sister was still in her teens, which made us all hugely uncomfortable at the time because you're like, no, no, I'm young. I don't want to think about responsibilities. And then, of course, the idea that our parent would have been there. But my father had an illness that was likely to have taken him out, right? So my parents approached it and my father also is a pastor so his function in his beliefs uh spiritually and in his role counseling others of his congregation made it a lot more real so whereas i'm prepared for conversations my parents were like we're getting ready to move in the next three to five years we're going to be in a graduated community that will have independent living then a tower and then we'll have more dependent living we're going to take care of all that you guys are not even going to be tasked with the decision <laughs> matter of fact they've even got their headstone already installed and engraved with everything but the dates on the family plot in Atlanta Kansas oh my okay God. <laughs> 
And my dad is very, wow. very happy about that. You know, his his one statement on the back says unoccupied. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to talk about a belief system statement, my dad has determined in life that his <laughs> after death statement is he's not there. It's a, this is an unoccupied plot. You know what I'm saying? But that's very different from the very average different. friend that I have, you know, an encounter with in terms of yes. discussing the idea of grief, loss, and transition, you know. Um, and then, of course, because of my dad's illness, at his 40th wedding anniversary, I did one of those American Memory Projects things where I asked him a series of questions of him and my mom both um, for them to leave for the yet unborn grandkids and for us at some point in time. And he had such peace and clarity about, like, I am happy with the life I have lived. Do I want to be around? Yes. But I'm okay, and I need you to be okay. That is an inheritance that is, as you know, truly priceless because it it shifts in for you, your belief system, because you can't hold on to it if somebody breaks all the illusions, (laughs) like, and keeps it really real with you. Uh, You know, that, that is very freeing overall. To some people, they're yeah, just... I think, a, I think that's great. I know that other people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe the headstone is already... A, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, all that we have to do is call the monument people, and they're going to come out with a date on it, <laughs> you know? Thank you, parents, <laughs> for making it that easy, really, you know? Um, I, 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 I think I'm very much the same when I, when I talk to my daughters about it. I said... Um, the money that I leave is going to be the one that I didn't get a chance to spend, and it'll be enough to cremate me, and that's it. And I said, and if you want to save the money for cremation, just leave me at the hospital. They'll figure out something to do with my body. <laughs> and you I know. know they're like, Mom, what? <laughs> Mama, mommy. We're yeah, not going to leave you, to, I want to make it as normalizing as possible because it it, 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 it is. And again, I want them to, I think you said earlier, to really understand what happy is. I I want them to have a definition of what makes them happy. And I want them to also understand what made me happy, and that's what I want them to think about, and just be happy. And and, and the, the opportunity to exist here on the plane together that's what we should create, happy memories, happy experiences. You know, I'm very clear what makes me happy, and I think the two of them have grown up to a space in which they can define happiness for themselves also. So these are the kinds of things that I think perpetuate grief when we have not done the examination of any of what we've been talking about for the last few minutes. And to be a part of helping that conversation move forward is a great honor to me because I have this African um, thing that comes to me a lot of times when I feel as if, you know, have I done enough? And it says, each one, teach one. It's an African Mm -hmm. proverb, and Mm -hmm. that brings me comfort and solace. Because if I have been able to influence at least one person to examine who they are and then make a decision of how they can and they have the power to define life on their own terms, 
then I've done my best. And mm-hmm. once I've done my best, then I can rest. And that's what I do on a nightly basis. I, you know, go back through my day and um, say, okay, I think I've at least impacted one person's life in a positive way. I had some um, contractors here at the house in Covington today doing some work, and I went out to get them some money, and I brought back burgers for them. And so it was two, three guys. I said, y'all can come in the kitchen and sit out and eat, and they did. And, of course, mm-hmm. we got into this deep conversation. Three brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 when, I, when I find the opportunity to talk to three African-American males, believe me, I take it. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, yes. Oh, absolutely. And so I can sleep for three more days now because I've been packing on three different people. <laughs> well, you need, so, to add a, you need to add a fourth day, Kalita, because, I mean, each one, I am one. Here, here. Okay, so I got four I. people. <laughs> here am I, like you know, not just before, but today. The teaching of what you're talking about is an active teaching and um, I don't want to say assimilation, but incorporation for me of what you've talked about. So, if anything I could say from this time that we've spent. Mission has been accomplished, <laughs> truthfully. I'm so happy. I do I'm want, happy for that. Well, I do want to have you come on again. Colleen, if you will, we'll take uh, some time to see if your availability is in the future because I think this is going to also process a little bit, I know, for me and for you as well as we pivot then to open up a whole nother container around what we believe. And I think that hopefully there is someone who has released, if just a little degree or two, maybe a belief that was constricting or restricting them, even if just a little bit of ease in their belly or their chest or in their heart or mind from the things that you have uh, shared this evening. Yes, I absolutely ditto. I agree. And um, as always, my desire is to be of service and absolutely share what's valuable to me just in case someone else can find value in it. Well, absolutely. I'm very thankful for you. And everyone who is tuning in either this evening who have been on the phone lines listening, I appreciate you. And those who will listen, know that this was for you in the perfect time in which you were meant to stumble across it or receive it as a referral from someone who cares about you deeply and is looking for a way to maybe support you in some form or fashion. Uh, My guest next week is uh, Essence Turner, also known as the Beautiful Happy Goddess. Essence is a certified radical forgiveness coach. So we're going to be going into the topic of, uh, of course, forgiving others, forgiving self, um, what the experience of trauma or loss 
or harm, even at the hands of another, what that can bring us in terms of the grief conversation and the ways that she has learned and developed um, through her program and coaching to approach it from that particular lens, which I expect will be very informing as well. And we do have future, um, I have a show, uh, episode that will be dedicated to men. We'll have uh, two male voices, I believe, uh, social workers, um, people who are working, one who works in the public school system with uh, children, so I think that it would be very interesting to approach how grief is expressing in young people, because I know the schools are dealing with that and parents are dealing with that. And then also uh, later we've got Kate's Club, which is a support group for children who have lost a sibling or parent uh, early on in their young years, again, and with the family structural support needed to move the unit in a functional way through the grieving process, which we find in families, it is not limited to like when the child is six or seven, if they've lost a parent, what happens when they're 10 years later, when they're 17 or a teenager, what that trauma and grief manifests itself. And then as we saw, as Kalina, you mentioned, like what it can look like for 40 years beyond that uh, from unresolved loss of, of a very close familial uh, blood or relative person at that point. And then we are also going to be talking about the emergence of medicine in terms of holistic medicine, not necessarily prescribed medicine, but uh, things like ayahuasca, uh, mushrooms, and the psychedelics, and marijuana, all the ways that are kind of coming into more scientific approach and conversation about how these can be utilized to help us process through the grief in a healthy way rather than through self-medication and substance and abuse and harm as the toxic way of using medicine to move through pain. So, you know, we've got a wide ranging, we've got many different lenses to examine this continuing conversation about grief through. And I'm just so thankful, Kalina, that I have access to someone like you and all the other people who are coming to share these statements. Did you have any final thoughts or prompts or wise words for our <laughs> listeners as we close? Um, I think, let me think for a second. The thing that comes to mind is the understanding that you really have power in your life to decide how you want to define your life. In psychology, it's called reframing. Mm -hmm. You can reframe your life to your liking. Uh, that, to me, is probably the most powerful understanding or realization that one can come to. And that's not saying that other people are not going to have their opinions. It's just being powerful enough to recognize that you don't need them to agree. You really don't. Mm, mm. Yeah. That's a hard one. 
right? It's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. It's doable, though. Um, right. I say to my clients all the time, you are so worth it. You are mm. so worth it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Like, you know, and that Amen. is... You have to believe you have to believe that you are worth the time that you invest on yourself, what the time you examine yourself, the time that you focus your care efforts towards yourself. Though if we can get into that belief foundationally, uh that would be like a whole resolution that upshoots from that, I believe. Yes, understanding the difference between selfish and self-care. Self-focused is one of those things that some people believe, if you're being self-focused and self-caring, they believe it is selfish and project that to you with persistence and strength, you know. It's all about liberating, right? We're constantly liberating ourselves. One of the books that I love is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, and it really goes to what he calls the domestication of the human animal, which is where we are taught from the age of, like, don't pick your nose. You know, like, we don't pick our nose. That's bad. Like, you know, boys don't cry. Like, there's this thing that happens that conforms Mm -hmm. us to these societal expectations and that we reach a point in our life when those agreements we have made begin to chafe or cause us to harm ourselves trying to fulfill and that we can reorder and reorganize our approach to every single thing by applying these four frameworks uh, to our life to rebuild the new agreements and, and the belief system that we're going to operate on going forward. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, many flavors. Well, Kalina, thank you so much. We are going to close it off. And for each of you who've joined, thank you so much. We will be here again next Thursday and uh, going forward for the next several weeks. If you're listening somewhere where there is an opportunity for you to interact with us, such as comments on the YouTube channel or on the Vibrarian Facebook page or the Realizing What Matters Facebook page, please drop us a line or email me. Uh, You could email me at joelle, J-O-E-L-L-E, at the vibrarian, T-H-E-V-I-B-E-R-A-R-I-A-N.com. And if you are seeking additional resources relating to getting help for grief, please do reach out and I will be happy to provide information about uh, practitioners and resources where you can go for further assistance. Kalina, are you accepting any clients at this time? If they come through you, the answer is yes. Okay. Well, that is your permission, people, if you've been listening. Now, I will tell you, Kalina will take the first yes, but if you're playing around or you're not wanting to necessarily work, uh, she has no problem ending your client relationship 
<laughs> you know, and uh, she has very healthy professional boundaries in terms of managing her effort in terms of the work that she is willing to do with you if you are willing to do the work for yourself, you know, because she's not going to do the work for you, but she will help Thank you do your work. <laughs> so, And before we leave, Joelle, I want to say thank you again for allowing me to share this space with you. I absolutely appreciate that. And if and when you need me, let me know. You know I have you on my contacts permanently. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you, Kalina. The feeling is absolutely, as they say, uh, when they say namaste, you know, the light in me. I just see the light in you and the reflection of each other in our experience together is an absolute manifestation that is is high vibration positive and it has changed my life and continues to do so. So the thanks is mutual. Each of you this week, I hope that you receive such abundant blessings that they spill out from your arms to bless the world around you. Let's honor the light in each other. Namaste. Namaste.